0: We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at Bellencat.com.
1: We're into the dead zone for British politics, or at least that's what it used to be like in August, instead of which we're having a gripping struggle for power Will it be Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak emerging in September as Britain's new Prime Minister? And if you're listening to this in foreign climes, you might want to think about whether you want to come back.
2: If we don't bring inflation back to target, bearing in mind the huge scale of the energy shock we're seeing, if we don't bring it back to target, and if we get these so-called second round effects entering in, it's going to get worse. And it will get worse precisely, I'm afraid, for those who are least well off in society.
1: That was Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England governor, giving one of the bleakest forecasts I can remember over the state of the British economy. A year-long recession, double-digit inflation, rising interest rates. this trusts the Foreign Secretary has no doubt who has to shoulder some of the blame. The Bank of England, which she thinks needs a new mandate, and the Treasury, until recently, of course, under the management of Rishi Sunak.
2: And the fact is, if we tax businesses too much, if we tax people too much, and we've currently got the highest tax rates for 70 years in our country,
0: we will throttle that growth.
1: Sunak, according to polls of party members, is trailing trust by about 30 points. A huge gap, if you believe the polls. But the former chancellor hasn't thrown in the towel, as he told the BBC. So I'm gonna keep going out and about. I'm fighting hard for every vote. It's a real privilege to talk to all our members about the vision I have for the country, and I'm confident that we can win them over. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times. With me, George Parker, standing in for Seb, who's supposed to be on holiday. Over the summer weeks, we'll be focusing on the Tory leadership race, with slightly shorter episodes than usual, focusing on the only story in town. And with me are Robert Shrimsley, the Chief Political Commentator, and Political Correspondent Jasmine Cameron-Shileshi he has been out this week meeting some of the 160,000 or so Tory members who will choose the next Tory leader and the Prime Minister by September the 5th. Thank you all for joining the pod. So, Robert, the bleak state of the British economy has dominated the news this week. How do you think it plays into the Tory leadership debate?
2: Well, actually, I'm not sure there's been that much overlap. I think if you've looked at the hustings and they're beginning to fall into a fairly clear pattern now. They're beginning to see the same things said again and again, which is what always happens in these contests. It's possible to see people getting increasingly divorced from the reality of the British economic situation. I mean, you played the clip of Liz Truss talking about the growth that's going to be delivered quickly. And that's you know, a perfectly coherent economic view that you've got to get the economy motoring, get growth to just to fund the spending. But anybody sitting out in the real economy is seeing rising inflation a country heading into recession interest rates going up all the things that andrew bailey mentioned you don't hear a lot from the tory leadership contenders about what they're going to do about the energy price crisis that's coming down the track to people in you know increasingly short instalments so i don't blame them this is the way you play an elect what is essentially a primary contest you talk to the people you're talking to because that's what this contest is all about but i think anybody looking at it would wonder how much time they're actually spending out in the real world rather than the world of Conservative Party associations. Now, earlier this week,
1: Seb asked Liz Truss at the Exeter hustings if she intended to break up Rishi Sunak's old Treasury fiefdom. One of your previous contenders, Kemi Badenoch, talked about
2: breaking up the Treasury. Do you think the Treasury should be broken up? Well, I wouldn't want to give them any advance warning. Uh, If I was going to do that... But I, I, I do think the Treasury needs to change. And it has been a block on progress. And this is partly about challenging not just the Treasury orthodoxy, but the Whitehall orthodoxy and getting things done. And I'm prepared to break our eggs to make the omelette.
1: Robert, you, to mix our metaphors here, you wrote a column this week about how Liz Truss is presenting herself as the slayer of the Whitehall blob, including the
2: apparently stale thinking emanating from the Treasury. Does that wash? You know, yes and no. First of all, there's crude politics in this because her opponent, as you said at the beginning, you know, wasn't until very recently the Chancellor of the Exchequer. So if you want to do your opponent down, it's a very handy way of saying you know he presided over this orthodoxy which didn't work. So there's some political calculation in it. In fairness to Liz Truss, she's always been of a different view of the way the Treasury and the British economy should work. She's constantly pushed different opinions from when she was at the Treasury. So it is what she thinks. The truth is, whatever failings you think the Treasury is guilty of, and it certainly is guilty of some, it comes down largely to the political leadership of the country. It comes down to the Prime Minister not enforcing his opinions on the Treasury. It comes down to having a Chancellor who the Prime Minister didn't agree with. So there's a weak and divided leadership at the top. And that's a big problem. So there is an alibi there for Liz Truss. There is an argument that she can make that she will provide unified leadership, pushing the country in a particular direction. Whether it turns out, her having provided that unified leadership, that that was actually the cause of the problem is, I think, a different matter. You know, the fundamental problems the economy is facing are the backwash from the pandemic, the debts run up during the pandemic, the costs that have come from Brexit, the energy and supply chain shocks that are spiralling inflation and very, very poor and weak leadership. So it can help if her economic theory is right But otherwise, it looks like an excuse put forward by a government that's actually been in power for 12 years. And people are entitled to say, well, if this was a problem, you've had 12 years and why haven't you fixed it? Just one final thing,
1: Robert, on on this. There's been some discussion about whether this trust is a Thatcherite or a Reaganite
2: or a mixture of the two. What does that mean exactly? Fundamentally, the, the argument comes down to whether under Margaret Thatcher, sound money and sound finance was the core of her argument. She couldn't spend money, you didn't have, it was very much, you know, the, the daughter of the grocery shop and such like, and you know, household saving. So fighting inflation, sound money, don't spend what you haven't got. That was the Thatcherite ethos. The Reaganite view is more that you can bring forward the ideas of a Laffer curve, trickle down economics, cut taxes, supply side economics will spur growth, and that will resolve problems. And it doesn't matter if you borrow a bit to do this. So that's the fundamental distinction between the two, I think. And Liz Truss does veer towards the Reaganite view, which is you cut taxes to encourage growth, you borrow if you have to, and you invest, and, and that way you get the economy motoring. And a
1: dose of sunny optimism, I guess, is the, to, the, yes. other, the other part of the, the Reaganite message. So, Jasmine, at start this contest, Rishi Sunak seemed to think that he could run on his record as the Chancellor, the serious person for serious times. But it feels now as if he's almost trapped by that record, doesn't it? The
0: slight problem for both Truss and Rishi Sunak is that as members of the cabinet or former members of the cabinet, they are closely linked to Johnson's regime and economic policies, but no one more so than Rishi. And while Truss is able to differentiate herself by essentially arguing that she would take the country into a slightly different economic direction, this low tax, high growth approach, Rishi is essentially sticking to some of the unpopular policies introduced under the Johnson era. So the hike in national insurance and the corporation tax hike. So people look at Rishi Sunak and they see all the things they didn't like about Johnson's government without any of the charisma or energy of Johnson. I think if I were to compare the two to parents, I'd say Rishi is like the stern mum telling you to eat your vegetables. And then Liz is like the fun dad saying it's okay to eat ice cream for dinner. And I think just touching on Robert's point about the tone of the debates, I do definitely agree that there is a sense that both candidates are almost divorced from reality and the huge economic crisis that is about to hit the country come October And I'm yet to really hear a sensible, in-depth discussion from either candidate about how they're going to support families who are going to be plunged into fuel poverty, how they're going to support those who are struggling to afford food. And I think with Boris effectively able, no one's really seen or heard from him, we are really looking to these candidates to come up with credible solutions. And I think the problem for Rishi is that a lot of people will look at what's going on, they'll look at the high inflation, they'll look at the recent interest rate hikes announced by the Bank of England, and they'll look at that and say, well, actually, that's caused in part by some of the policies that he introduced as Chancellor. Whereas Liz Truss has enough distance from that to say, actually, well, that was what Rishi introduced as Chancellor. This is what I'll introduce as PM.
1: And Robert, it just shows us how difficult it is to run as a Tory
2: leader and a prospective prime minister from the position of being a former chancellor. People always think chancellors get to the top, but in fact, since the war, only three people have ever done it direct from number 11. Then James Callaghan did it after other jobs. And of those three, you had Gordon Brown, John Major and Harold Macmillan. Both John Major and Harold Macmillan got it quite quickly and suddenly and unexpectedly. Only Gordon Brown was the long-term favourite. It's very, very hard because if things are going well, the Prime Minister stays popular. And if things are going badly, you're the guy that gets the blame.
1: And you're the person who's been paid to sit in the Cabinet worrying about the economy and
2: telling people about the awkward trade-off, right? Yeah. I mean, in fairness to Rishi Sunak, he has been warning about inflation for a lot longer than most people. And where there have been tax rises imposed. It's partly because he felt the need to try and contain Boris Johnson, who would just have spent and spent. So,
0: but nonetheless, he's been the man in the hot seat. Now, uh, Jasmine Truss is the clear front runner, as we were discussing, and there's almost a sort of cheerful
1: insurgency sort of mood about her campaign, isn't there?
0: Yeah, I think so. You can really tell that she is getting into the swing of the campaign. She's more confident at these hustings. And you can tell that she's she's really feeling as though she's got the Tory grassroots on her side. But one thing I, I would add, though, that obviously this week she had her first hiccup she had that U-turn on public sector pay boards. So her campaign proposed this idea of regional pay boards. The idea is that how much you get paid as a public sector worker depends on the specific region where, where you live. And it was obviously met with an immediate backlash in particular from Tory MPs, from the quote-unquote Red Wall seats, because you know, their argument was that it, it basically flew in the face of, of levelling up. So if the government said that it wants to move high-paying jobs that have been based into London, into the Midlands, into the north of England, where their local economy needs a bit of a boost. It's a bit counterproductive to have a policy where individuals will see their pay cut when they move into these areas. And obviously, she she used hand on it by Wednesday, but then seemed to double down, almost arguing that actually the policy was fine, it had just been misinterpreted, which struck me as quite an odd position to take. Seeing as we've had months of concerns about trust in politics and Johnson making misleading statements about Partygate and Erin Patterson, part of the idea of this new contest is that we would have a new leader who would mark a change in tone and return to honest politics. And I thought it was quite a revealing insight into how she would conduct herself when her back is up against the wall. So yes, there's this feeling of insurgency and the polls are suggesting I think she's got a 38 point lead according to the latest YouGov polling. So there is a movement in her direction, but also there are some slight cracks appearing as well.
2: One of the things about that incident it's what an unforced error it was. In part, obviously, Liz Truss is trying to show that there is serious economics behind her thinking and that she's going to claw back money. And that's why there isn't such a big hole in her budget. And you both will have seen this. You know, Every day, I sit at my look at my email and I get two or three press releases from Liz for Leader outlining new policies and new ideas. And I find myself thinking, you're 30 plus points ahead. Why don't you not say anything new? Mm. You don't need to be spewing out new initiatives and new ideas. If I was in your position, I would just keep hammering home the message that's got me into a big lead and and not keep trying to come up with new ideas. Well, especially trying to write what's
1: effectively a manifesto for government when your candidate's out on the road somewhere miles away and basically you've got people throwing together policies by... Photocopying press releases from the Taxpayers' Alliance, right. and then claiming something that's written in black and white has been willfully misrepresented by journalists like me who wrote the story up. It's um, an extraordinary state of affairs. So anyway, listen, Jasmine, you spent part of the week up in Buckingham, a safe Conservative seat in the Southeast. Uh, what was the mood like among the Conservative Party members that you were speaking to up there in terms of how they viewed the two candidates?
0: It's quite interesting because based on the polling, I would have assumed that the majority of individuals who I spoke to would have been deeply enthusiastic and in favour of trust. The reality is is that a lot more of the people I spoke to were undecided. A lot of people were leaning towards trust or swaying towards Rishi Sunak, who also had a lot of support in the region as well. But I didn't actually speak to anyone who was a hardcore Lisboa leader, trust forever, sort of ideological advocate of hers. People were quite cautious. But one thing I would say, it's interesting that Robert made that point about the stream of policies she's introducing, that those individuals I spoke to who were in favour of the foreign secretary actually liked her bold policies. They liked the fact that she was coming at the job with a sense of energy and a sense of vision. And then on the flip side, those who favoured the Chancellor argued that actually Because he's been chancellor, he's been looking at the books for the past two years. He knows what's realistic in terms of tax and spend. And he's the only one who can actually handle the economy. The most interesting thing I found about visiting the area and speaking to people is that a lot of people hadn't even voted. And they were adopting this sort of wait and see approach. They were going to see how the race played out. They were going to listen to Hustings. And people taking that approach might actually favor Rishi Sunak if actually you know, we have a couple of more trust gaps and there's a bit more concern about the economy. That approach of the cautious Tory voter could potentially work in his favour. Robert, as
1: Jasmine was just saying, the polls suggest this huge lead for Liz Truss among the party members in as far
2: as we can trust these polls. Is there anything you think that can stop her now? Nothing predictable. There's always some shock incident that we don't know is coming that changes the calculations, but there's nothing predictable that I can see that derails her now. I think Tory members have had enough time to look at her. We know that they've liked her for quite a long time. She's, I think, impressed the more than they expect to be impressed in the way she's conducted herself during this campaign. And you and Jasmine have both talked about the way she's gained in confidence and she's relaxed into it and a bit more of her sense of humour has come through. Her slogans and her ideas are more polished. And Rishi Sunak is essentially trying to play the role of the grown-up in this contest as opposed to, you know, the insurgent child. And A, playing the role of the grown-up has never normally worked in Tory leadership contests. And B, it's harder to do if you make mistakes of your own. Rishi Sunak has not shown himself to be a brilliant politician who never makes mistakes. I don't see what it is that derails the trust train at this stage. Jasmine, is there anything you've seen of Liz Truss in this campaign that surprised you about her?
0: Initially, at the beginning of the campaign, she was definitely seen as the underdog. And I think she had a reputation for being slightly gaffe-prone. I think we all remember that speech where she was talking about the fact that Britain importing two-thirds of its cheese from abroad was a disgrace. And it was turned into a meme several times. She's been sort of gently mocked for seen as cosplaying Margaret Thatcher. So she was almost seen as the silly candidate compared to Rishi seen that's quite... Slick and, and media managed image, but I think I've been quite surprised and impressed at the fact that she's actually very good at turning her quote unquote weaknesses into strengths. So she knows she's a bit prone and rough around the edges, and in her conversations with Tory members, in her speeches, in in debate, she sort of turned it into a positive and said, "Well, actually, I'm 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 straight talking. I'm not slick. I'm you know I'll, I'll tell you what I mean." Say, for example, she knows that she was a Lib Dem and she was a Remainer. And she's actually argued that, hang on a minute, being a convert is a good thing. She knows how to evolve her thinking. So I think she's very good at identifying her weaknesses and framing them in a way that makes her look good. And Rob,
1: what do you make of the fact that in the last few days we've seen Sajid Javid, Penny Mordaunt, Tom Tuganat, all formerly Tory leadership contenders, coming over to Liz Truss's side? Does it tell us that she's more likely to be able to unite the party afterwards? Or does it tell us there are a load of careerist politicians who think she's going to win?
2: Well, it certainly tells you that they think she's going to win. But there's no point in coming out and endorsing the loser. So they clearly have made that calculation. There will be a moment. You know, the the new leader is chosen. The campaign is over. The ideological splits between them are really not as substantial as as the ferocity suggests in, in many cases. There's a big one around tax rates, but otherwise less so. So I think there is a place for unity in the party. It's it's certainly possible that everyone will want to get together. I think if she were to appoint a cabinet that wasn't just drawn from the narrow base of her supporters and shows a more broad-based cabinet that also people look at and go, those people are there on merit, then there will be a bit of space for unity. But I have to say, if I were her, I wouldn't assume that the unity lasts necessarily very long. She's got some quite big decisions to make. One side of her party or another will disagree with. So, She'll get a bit of a honeymoon, but these honeymoons are getting shorter and shorter these days. It's going to be a very difficult climate to have a honeymoon in, that's for sure, economically. Jasmine,
1: one final question to you. One little quirk in this contest this week was when we discovered that the voting system was going to be delayed by a few days because the security services were worried that it could be hacked. Can you explain what was going on there?
0: Effectively, the National Cybersecurity Centre, which is part of GCHQ, warned the Conservative Party that its voting systems were potentially vulnerable to outside actors. And so as a result, the Conservative Party sent a letter, an email to all their members, saying that the voting ballots will be sent out this week, but potentially um, next week's all the voting ballots will be slightly delayed. They've also tweaked the process whereby members were able to recast their vote at any point in the, during the summer. So if they sent an initial vote, they could change their minds before the uh, September 2nd deadline. That's now been changed so um, members can only vote once effectively. So it's, it's a quite an interesting intervention. I mean, it plays into widespread concerns that have occurred since the 2016 U.S. presidential election about hacking and interference in elections. But in some ways, it could also advantage Rishi Sunak. It works to his favour if people are sitting at home pondering. It's a long campaign campaign. We could see a couple more Liz scandals. We've already seen concern about the quote-unquote Fizz with Liz meetings and whether or not, and who paid for them and whether or not they were accounted for properly. As the conversation turns more to the economy, we can try to play it to his advantage and argue that actually I'm the only one who knows what I'm doing in this area. So we'll just have to wait and see.
1: Jasmine, Robert. Thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And we also love positive reviews and ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, George Parker, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. Sound engineers are Breen Turner and Jan Sixworth. I'll be back again next time, unless Seb's holiday turns out to be even more of an illusion than I'd expected, and he elbows me out of the hot seat. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.